Baker come and preach to us again. And uh, for those of you who may be new, I'll just recount a little bit of his, his bio. Uh, Ryan served as a, as a missionary in Japan. Uh, he served as a RUF campus minister uh, for many years and most recently was the senior pastor at, at Grace Presbyterian in Stillwater. And now he and his wife Emily have started the Story Matters uh, initiative a counseling service that, uh, and a special ministry uh, to the broken, to the hurting. Uh, Ryan is a gifted teacher and preacher, and you've heard him before. We're very grateful, Ryan, for your, your service and your ministry to us uh, through this last season of change, but also for this morning. So thank you, and we welcome you to come back to the pulpit again. Thanks, sir. Thank you, Charlie. That's kind. <clears throat> I'm not sure if you all are aware of where Clay is. Raise your hand if you know where Clay is. I won't tell the rest of you. But he, he gave me the opportunity to bring any passage I want. And in the past year, I usually bring sermons I've preached before. This is actually new because I was challenged to preach this at City Press in March. So I thought I'd do my dry run with you guys. I'd already been processing these verses. In fact, Charlie was like, did you choose this? It's these verses on oaths from uh, Matthew 5. So uh, if I fail or I speak heresy in keeping with Vegas, what happens at Redeemer stays at Redeemer. You can just email me your concerns. We'll have our private dialogue. Presbytery need not find out. It is a challenging passage, and uh, yet I've been processing it, and I really enjoy challenges where you look at these verses uh, that maybe for many people are throwaway verses and they actually are profound and you'll see that as we jump in but just to give you a little bit of backdrop before i read matthew the 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 verses are five chapter five verses 33 to 37 the backdrop is the sermon on the mount and um john stott calls this sort of the closest thing to a manifesto that jesus ever proclaimed it's here is who i am here is what a disciple looks like it's a discourse on discipleship. And it begins with Beatitudes, very uh, ground, uh, foundational truths that if you wanted to summarize them, you might just say it's shalom restored. It's our attempt as disciples to see heaven come to earth, which is also in the prayer in chapter 6. <clears throat> and then Jesus transitions to practical places. Uh, but right before doing so, he says, now... I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. Okay? That's what he does in these different five different sayings. And then he also says to his disciples, to you and I, our righteousness has to surpass that of a Pharisee. Which just in your mind, think these are the ones everybody thought had it together. Jesus, Jesus just said, you have to be better. And what we're going to find out is really the Pharisees or any legally minded folks in our midst often have the appearance of being holy, but often are less holy because they're trying to follow the rule of law and not the heart behind it. So he breaks into these different examples of of anger and murder being equal, lust and adultery. And now he filters into this area for this morning on oaths. So I'll read it and we'll jump in. Verse 33 of chapter 5. Again, you have heard... Again... You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, 
for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now this is before we get it. But even when you dye your hair, you have to admit about a week later, we see, we see you. Okay. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we thank you for your Sermon on the Mount and for all of your teaching. But most of all, we thank you that you have paved the way for those who are your children to be filled with your Spirit, to have complete righteousness in in the Spirit, that we now can approach your law in your ways with wonder and amazement without fear or, or condemnation. So we can look at this sermon and instead of feeling overwhelmed, we can look hopeful, knowing, of course, we fall short. But yet we long and hunger for shalom to be restored in our lives and in our world. Would you make that happen even to this day? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jim Carrey is a favorite, a favorite actor. I love him, of mine. And uh, my, one of my favorite movies is Liar, Liar. Um, probably I can't quote too much of it. But I'll give you the premise of Liar Liar. It's Jim Carrey plays a father named Fletcher, has a darling child and a wife, and he has a a career as a lawyer. But he has a problem. He lies a bunch. Um, And one morning, um, he's missed, excuse me, one evening, he has missed a birthday party of his son, which sounds horrible. It is horrible. Because of a commitment he made to a boss, And so the sun blowing out the candles makes a wish. For 24 hours, I want my dad to have to tell the truth. Now, I don't know why 24 hours. I mean, come on. Like, the whole rest of his life. But 24 hours for the movie, he blows out the candles, and magically, Fletcher, played by Jim Carrey, cannot lie. And it becomes comical, right? He he goes around trying to do his life, realizing at every turn how important fibbing and stretching the truth is to him. Uh, probably one of my favorite moments, I, I won't quote it verbatim, but his secretary says, Fletcher, your uh, client is on the phone. He just broke into another ATM and now he's in jail. What do you want him to do? For those of you that know the actual movie, I won't quote it perfectly, but he just says, stop breaking the law. And then he maybe adds something else and hands the phone back. He can't lie anymore. And it starts to wreck his life. Except it reunites him to his son and his wife. And it's actually a beautiful picture of the fact that what we think of as lying really is often broken vows and promises to the people we love. And so that's what came to my mind as I studied this passage because um, as we unpack it, what we're going to see is the Pharisees aren't necessarily concerned with the law behind their rules, but rather they're trying to figure out a way to keep doing what they want to do and keeping it legal, and in the end, it's actually worse than if they simply just didn't make a vow or an oath at all. So we'll unpack that as we go. But I want to just set the stage under the Sermon on the Mount. If you can bind the fact that Jesus is saying, true life comes from your union with Christ. I know that's not all in this sermon, but that's the totality of his ministry, right? We are filled with the Spirit. We are the first fruits of a new heaven and a new earth. And for Christians, everything's been turned upside down 
with Jesus' incarnation and life, death, and resurrection. So for this passage, then, if that's true, then we must see everything we do, every vow, everything we do is a commitment to Jesus. It's a lot, isn't it? There aren't, like, some commitments that are to him and others. We, it's all from him and for him. That's what he's saying. So, wow, let's jump into that. I have three points. Um, when I was in seminary, we studied preaching. Dr. Chapel said every main point has to have an explanation, an illustration, and an application. Well, that's all I'm going to do. Three points. Explanation. Then I'm going to try to illustrate it. And then I'm going to try to apply it. And when we're done, you may be more confused than you are right now. And that's fine. I really would welcome you reaching out to me because I know we can't solve all the craziness of this passage in 30 minutes. So explanation. Matthew 5, 33 to 37, Jesus begins in English with the word again. So this is clearly tied to what's come before. Jesus has been following a format where he states an Old Testament law closely worded to the way it's found in the Old Testament, but at least the way it's been said in that community. And then he sort of unpacks the way they're dealing with it. And then he says, well, here's what I say. So you might remember when he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. Of course, everybody's like, of course, yes, Jesus, we don't, we don't murder. And then he says, well, I say, don't be angry. Don't call your brother a fool. And it's like, okay, that's, that's large. He does it again with lust. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. The audience would be like, of course. Then he says, well, don't even look at a woman lustfully. So he's kind of always turning that on his head. So he does it here again. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That's not a direct quote from the Old Testament. That's a few different verses, but I'll read you Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, where we read, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So really, we have two concepts in this Old Testament verse, vows and oaths. A vow is a promise to do something. So let me just clarify, this is not a testimony. This is not, I swear, I'm going to take an oath at the court of law, and I'm going to tell you what I saw, you know, my firsthand account, I'm telling the truth. It's not that. It's, here is what I promise to do in the future. If it's up to me, and I'm able-bodied, I'm going to do this for the Lord. That's a vow. An oath adds to a vow an invocation of some form. Like, you know, you'll hear people like, on my mother's whatever. Or I don't want to say like things that are like offensive. But, you know, um, what are, what are modern-day oaths? I should have written some down. Pinky promise? I don't know. But you know what I'm saying. Well, in this day, apparently, these would be like, I swear by heaven. I swear by my head, apparently. That was an oath. Um, but they didn't swear to the Lord. Because if you did that, you had to keep it. So they kind of lowered it just a, a titch, you know? Like, hey, I'll swear by something lower. If push comes to shove, I can break it. Because I didn't swear to the Lord. To which Jesus is saying, hey, it's all mine. Right? Heaven's mine. 
Jerusalem is the seat of the great king. I'm the king. I mean, everything is Jesus's. Even your head, which you can't own, it's, a, it's the important part of our anatomy. Even we don't own the head. So Jesus is saying, look, it's a waste of time to add this oath to your vow as if you can break it because it's the same thing as vowing to the Lord. Does that make sense? So then he, found, he finishes by just saying, so let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's it. We're done. No, I'm kidding. Um, wouldn't that be amazing? Let me just point out a few thoughts on what's happening. Number one, these are all future-oriented things. Number two, they're probably things that need a little bit of oomph, a little bit of promise, right? In other words, I want something for me. I'm hoping for something coming my way, so I will add a little bit more than just saying I promise. I'll say an oath to it, and that way I'll get the, the funds, I'll get the opportunity, etc. So it seems to be a very much oriented around advancement. But also, um, to add that rejoinder or that, that, um, that oath to the, to the promise seems to lower it. Uh, a little to me. Have you ever been with somebody, maybe a salesman, maybe you do this, that says this to you, hey, I'll be honest. <laughs> and you're like, thank you. What were you being five seconds before that? And we do that. We do that because we're, what, he, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, this is really, really important. But it actually undercuts the very thing itself. And so Jesus is simply saying what he's been saying all along. What you say outwardly and what we can hear and it's visible must reflect what's inside. So one word for that is integrity. Um, that word is a loaded word. But let's just think about it from the perspective of engineering. Like if you're driving over a bridge, the structural integrity, if it says 5,000 pounds you, and you're in a 3,000 pound load, you hope it in has integrity. You hope that this bridge can support at least the 3,000 pounds. Jesus says later that Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. In other words, they look great on the outside, but inside they're dying. And that's what he's warning us of. If our speech, if our intentions, if our promises out, go out into the world with no integrity, it not only weakens our character the way we're received, it weakens Jesus himself. So, he wants us to be fully connected to the words we say. Now, the passage that I want to work with as well, we just heard read a little bit ago by Andy, is from James 4. And we'll, we'll kind of dovetail between the two, or back and forth between the two. But James 4 is a very famous verse. Um, you can turn there in your Bibles. It's verses 13 to 17. But James is actually, I, I believe, expounding on this principle from Matthew 5. And he says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. P-R-O-F-I-T, by the way. In religious circles, the word profit has to be clarified. Money. Not a person that they're going to have to tell the future. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say... If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
I've heard that preached, maybe you have too, where essentially the takeaway is still, still say the same thing. Just add the footnote, if the Lord wills. But there's way more going on. James is bothered that someone would say this. Um, I am proclaiming my future is going to be successful. Here's my guarantee. I'm going to make money. I'm going to earn a profit. Well, what if you don't? What if things don't go the way you, you planned? And if you think, now, just to make sure that that's true, look a little bit later when he says, say this instead, if the Lord wills it, notice the first words are, we will live. Like, if the Lord wills it in a year, I'll still be living. I'll be alive on this earth. I may not be. You see the difference? And then he says, we will do this or that. So what he's teaching, James, is doing, and I think building off of Jesus, is stop declaring all of your future successes as if you're the one who makes them happen. Why is that a problem? Because you don't make them happen. They're complete gifts from God. Right? And what ends up happening is if I lay out all of my life's plans according to me, is rather than freedom that I'm after, rather than the successes I'm buying into, I'm probably beginning to feel the weight of what I'm putting out there. I'm going to lose this kind of weight. I'm going to have this kind of money. I'm going to have this kind of family, this kind of spouse. this kind of, And it's just beginning to put a weight on me. And Jesus is inviting you into a free existence with him where he says, look, everything is taken care of. You do not need to go around promising and and vowing these things because I have given you everything. So, what happens if you vow with James's pretend person to go into a town, make some trades, maybe move to a different town and make a profit? Well, here's what happens. You go to town A, it doesn't go well, you move along. Right? You go to town B, you go to town C. But what if along the way, God has you to do something in that town that you promised to make a profit in. Then you're torn. See, So what James is teaching is, look, our job is to vow only to God. Our lives are with you. And that way, we can be free wherever we go to serve you and do this or that. So, verse 17 is where I think he concludes this. He says, so, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. A lot of scholars are like, well, several, not a lot, have said, how does that even, I'm not sure that even fits. Uh, just a quick aside on Bible study. A lot of modern interpreters love to do that. They love to say, someone came along later and added this. And just be aware, because why would an editor make something more confusing? <laughs> Usually they clear it out and make it easier to understand. So our job is to go, or... We try to understand what James really said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what he is saying, oh, there's a mouse. I know. But there isn't. No worries, everybody. What James is teaching is this. When our entire existence is wrapped up in our personal goals, our view, our vision, and we do it under the auspices of, like, 
I, I vowed to do these things, and they're not necessarily God's things, then when he gives us opportunities, we will often ignore them or miss them. And let me try to illustrate that. Uh, actually, I have two things I wanted to say before I illustrate it. Number one, this is not against planning. So please keep planning. But what's the relationship to our plans? I believe it was Eisenhower who said, planning is essential. This is you know, the, one of the greatest generals of World War II who was obviously interested in planning. Plans, planning is essential. You know what he said after that? Plans are useless. His point is, you still have to do it. It's critical. We plan out, we look. But our relationship is not as if we know they're going to happen, but now we turn back to Jesus and we say, if it's your will, this would be amazing. But I'm your servant and I will go and follow your lead along the way. And as things start to break down, we don't just jump to the next town. We ask the Lord, what's for us in that place? We see this in Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So that's the explanation so far. I'll keep trying to do it as we go. But, and we're getting close to the end. The illustration, which thankfully is far shorter, is this. There's a place in Luke where Jesus is challenged. What is the law? And he says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. And there's a lawyer who's sitting there, a legally minded person who says, aha, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells a story. And the story is of a man who's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. There's a, a descent. He's attacked. He's left for dead. And over the next period of time, two different people see him who could have easily helped him. That are legally minded people. One's a Leviticus, one's a Levite, one's a priest. And scholars don't really understand why the two, because they're very similar. I think Jesus is making a point. The third is a Samaritan. The Samaritan has no relationship to the law. And guess what he does? He serves. He saves this person. He brings them out. He takes them on his way. Now, this Samaritan is a very successful business person. He had the money to leave at the end for doctor bills and, and, and for the person to get back on his feet. But his freedom was there and such that he could actually go, apparently, though I've got a plan, God has a different idea. And his relationship to his day's plan was altered, and that was fine with him. The legally minded people would say something like this. God's plan is for me not to be dirty, not to be unclean, not to touch someone in such a state. Plus, I have business to conduct the Lord's business. And it sounds so lofty. And it's absolute rubbish and breaks the law. So the point is this. Jesus is saying, look, make sure that you have such a relationship to him that that partnership with Jesus and the freedom we have in Jesus from the law compels us to love and do his will every day. Does that make sense? So here's, here's the application. That was the illustration. Now I'm going to finish the application. And I don't even know if I've done a good job. Do you see the connection between the responsibilities in your life and Jesus? 
Years ago, I read a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Have you all, anybody read that? Know about it? Uh, it's a great, I mean, there's a lot of great parts of it. But one of the things I loved was the, uh, Stephen Covey wanted you to identify the roles of your life. You know, what are your roles? I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, a businessman. And you name these roles, and then you develop your goals. But one of the things I think, and he may have even said this, I think Christians have to do is, is ask, how does this role connect me to the Lord? How, am I, how is every action I'm doing connected to the Lord? Right? That, that's part of the teaching. In other words, every commitment I make is for Jesus. Now the good news is, he's incredibly loving, incredibly freeing. We have a lot of bandwidth, but the point is, we're never to have like double lives where outwardly we do our religious stuff, and then we kind of sneak over and do this stuff kind of in hiding. Or we set up major goals for ourselves and don't have any idea how Jesus is connected to those. That is what our culture is doing. Our culture believes you are your own. Our culture believes you get to choose what you want to do. Create your destiny. And if it looks big enough and beautiful enough, then everyone will applaud you. And because you're a Christian, if you are, you get to go to heaven with that. So awesome. Rather than that, Jesus is saying, I'm reaching into your soul. I'm changing you from the inside out. And everything you do from here forward is for my glory. That's the goal. Easy to do, right? I remember years ago talking to a man who uh, kind of confided, we were in a group, but maybe I was by myself with him at the moment, that he was having some health issues in his job that required him to fly overseas created the risk of blood clots and potential dying. And I'm like 21, so like any 21-year-old, I was like, tell your boss. Change jobs. And, right, who wouldn't say that at 21? Like, come on. And uh, I just, I still feel it almost in my body as I remember the response. It was like this visceral, like, I could never do that. And I mean, I told, me and I were already married. I told her, like, I can't. I was talking to this guy, and, you know, I, I've never forgotten that moment because it wasn't that he shouldn't have kept his job. But it was like, that's not even a possibility. I've made a vow to my own sense of whatever, and I'm not even willing to consider that Jesus might want me to talk to my boss and even have the conversation, is this healthy for my life, my family, etc. And that just has stuck with me, and I would ask you this question. The first application thought was, have you connected your personal roles to Jesus, but the real question now is, have you identified the vows you've made against him? We all have hidden commitments that steer our lives. Those, that Levite and that priest would have hated to have to give an account for why they didn't help the person. It was not biblical knowledge that kept them from helping this, this person on the side of the road. It was their own internal commitment to success, to arriving on time, to being able to perform their ceremony, to not being sent out of a community for cleansing. Whatever it was, it was these internal senses of vow that kept them from actually doing the right thing. And so I think in a twist, going back to Matthew 5, Jesus is saying, don't 
make oaths that keep you from obeying me. And we come to these verses, and unfortunately for most of us, we think these are the ones that matter the least. Murder, anger, huge. Lust, huge. Divorce, fairly large. Um, love your enemies. I don't wrestle with that one. Just kidding. But we get to the oath one, and we're just like, <clears throat> I mean, when I hear people preach, I still get to like sign you know, my name on things, and if I go to the court. So I think I just, in fact, I was challenged to preach this because the pastor was like, I don't want to touch it. But I'm going to invite us to go. Jesus put this in his manifesto for a reason. What are your vows? What are your internal commitments that you've never even paid attention to or identified that keep you from being the person Jesus has designed you to be? Commitments to being liked by others, pleasure, security. Often we'll find that these vows that are inside have sprung from moments of harm, from traumas, from embarrassments. I'll never do that again. I have clients whose parents were very poor, and they say, I vowed that day we would be wealthy. Right? What are the vows you've made in your life that are taking you away from the option of walking with Jesus in all moments? So to conclude, I don't even know how to conclude this. Sorry, everybody. We have two minutes. <coughs> Alan Noble's book, anyone read You Are Not Your Own? Have, has anyone heard of this book? He lives in Shawnee. He went to City Press. He's not in Shawnee Press. This is like a phenomenal writer, phenomenal book. But he's rifting off the Heidelberg Catechism that says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism and the answer of the believer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And what the message of Noble's book is, is that this culture, as much if not more than any other time in human history, tells you, you are your own. You design your liturgies. You design your passions. You choose your tribes. You figure it out. You put it on your Facebook. You get your followers. You can succeed. You can have it all. And we're dying. We have more mental illness, anxiety, depression than ever before. People are, it's, we're melting. And Jesus says, no. I am yours and you are mine. I came and I pursued you and I love you unconditionally. And you are free in me. My burden is light. Let's accept the offer. You know, have you ever heard of someone get this offer for like, well, I started, did a startup and someone offered me a billion, but I thought I want to keep it. No. Give, take the billion. Anyone? Am I the only one? Jesus has offered you the billion. Give him everything. And say yes. There will not be a When I come across a place where I feel every part of me, my instinct not wanting to obey Jesus, I will bring that to you because you are gentle. And you will listen to me and you will show me where my harm has created that, where I have sinned and you've already forgiven me and I can rejoice in you and move forward.
Isn't that what it means to be poor in spirit? The very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to say this. I don't know what, much what's going on in Asbury. How many of you know what the heck I'm talking about? Does anyone know? There is a, a revival, a movement, whatever. And first of all, let's praise the Lord. Anytime people want to praise him and be in a position that, or in a place for now 12 days, revivals happen in history. We are a denomination that I am a person that loves the Great Awakening and the Reformation. And right there's revivals. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And I just want to say, often it starts with youth. Because they don't have to go anywhere. Like, I mean, I'm not, I know it sounds, but there's like this, the youth in our world are in a perfect position between, okay, I've got all this baggage that I've been taught. I've got this future I don't know about. Right now, I've got Jesus. And I just think we can learn from that and go, what commitments are keeping us from wanting to worship him? to give him all of aspects of our lives to praise him. I think we should support the youth that also become like a child ourselves in our discipleship. So, if that doesn't make sense or I've pre preached heresy, let me know. But, uh, I'll close this in prayer. Jesus, thank you that you give us verses uh, in the Bible that are not completely and utterly clear at the first reading. But as we pay attention, we can sense your heartbeat. That you want disciples who are so changed by your love. Changed by the fact that the law has lost all power. Changed by the fact that we are no longer caught up in the world's opinions, but only in you. That we can do things that the world might look at us and call crazy. We can do things that we might think are crazy. But Lord, we cannot do those things when we're committed to our own personal oaths made to other objects other than you. So will you show us the places we can bring you, the places that get in the way. Lord, as we come forward in a moment and take communion as a family, let us remember we are partaking of your death and your resurrection. And we are living in a new reality. Forgive us for having one foot in the old and one foot in the new. Amen.